continue our series in John. And I just want to give you some personal context this morning before we read, especially if you are new to our church. The passage that we are about to read this morning is a dear one to our church. If you've ever seen the logo, the letters PCPC with the vine moving in and out, uh, that image comes from this passage. You'll notice also the table behind me has a vine carved into it. That image also comes from this passage. But also our language. If you've been around at all, you may have heard us use the word abide before. The word, we don't probably use that a lot in common speech. The word abide in Christ. Just want to let you know that the first formal job responsibility, the first formal responsibility written into the job description of each of our staff members, from our pastors to our accountants, to those who manage our facilities, the first line on the job description is abide in Christ. We like that language. John liked, liked it first. <laughs> he uses the word over 50 times in his New Testament writings and he uses it most often in this passage here, 10 times in only 11 verses. It's a very formative passage of scripture for here, us here at PCPC. Let's read it together now and ask God to continue his work in us this morning. John chapter 15 Verses 1 through 11. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning and ask God to teach us his word. Father, we just read it. It says that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would do all that we need this morning to impress your word upon our hearts so that the outcome would be as Jesus told us, told us he wanted it, that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. We pray this in the name of Jesus himself. Amen. One piece of advice that I got growing up, I don't... I don't hear it a lot anymore, but I'm sure it's still around, was this. Find something you enjoy doing, and you won't have to work a day in your life. Have you ever heard that before? Find something you enjoy doing, and you won't have to work a day in your life. That was not advice that I got from my parents. Uh, They were more of the mentality that you find a job first, and you figure out a way to pay for your car insurance and your air conditioning, and then you can talk about joy. Joy is something better considered after you've paid your rent. But growing up, the phrase did have a certain, had a certain punch to it. Find something you enjoy doing and you won't have to work a day in your life. 
no matter if you actually find that to be realistic, whether you believe it or not this morning, you get the gist. Joy brings a measure of freedom and vibrancy into our lives that compels us to be good at whatever we're doing. Joy fuels productivity. Joy is important to the doing of anything well, but especially over the long haul. Our passage this morning is about joy and the significance of deep and sustained joy in our lives as Christians. That our passage is primarily about joy is crystal clear at the very end in verse 11 when Jesus summarily says, I have told you all these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That is to say, all that Jesus has said so far is for the purpose of joy topping out in our lives. But that this passage is primarily about joy is also apparent from the dominant metaphor that Jesus uses throughout the passage. That is the metaphor of a vineyard. Israel was a land of vineyards, the fruit of which, of course, was a grape, which was used to make wine. And wine in the Bible is one of the principal images for joy, for celebration, for festivity, for God's abundant blessings. The very first miracle in John's gospel was the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine in order to keep the joy of a wedding celebration going. And here we have the very last I am statement in John's gospel. There are seven of them. I am the vine, you are the branches. And once again, Jesus uses the image of wine, the image of a vineyard, in order to tell his followers that the joy of belonging to him will never, ever come to an end. Jesus wants us, he wants his church everywhere, to be filled with enduring joy. Now, why is that so important? Well, I mentioned it earlier, joy is crucial to the doing of things well, especially over the long haul. To use the image that's in our passage, joy is crucial to bearing fruit, to fruit bearing. Joy empowers calling. Now remember where the disciples are in our story. They're huddled up in a room. Uh, They've just celebrated the Passover feast. And Jesus has been drilling into their minds and into their imaginations that his death is at hand. Remember there is fragility among the leadership. And centuries of persecution is just on the other side of the door. This little group will need joy to survive. This little movement, these disciples will need joy for a mission that claims as its own boundaries the very ends of the earth. You see, without joy, there is no great commission because without joy, there is no church. The church is constructed on the belief that God has delivered to us the gospel. The word gospel means good news, news of great joy. I want you to listen to the words of Leslie Newbegin, a famous British missionary from the last century, once wrote this. He said, there's been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. Obedience to a command. But if one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission in the New Testament begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive 
is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion of joy. A radioactive fallout. It's not lethal, but life-giving. So what is Newbegin saying? He's saying this. We are all here this morning in this building, worshiping here in Dallas, Texas, along with brothers and sisters, churches all over the planet, because of centuries of joy. Joy found in Jesus. Joy that has rolled on like a current through time, even against the longest of odds. We need joy to be the church. We need joy to be the people that God has called us to be. Jesus tells us this morning three things, I think, at least from this passage, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to see where, in, where uh, joy in Jesus begins, where our joy begins. Number two, I want you to see how that joy grows. How does it take over our lives? How does it grow in us? And then finally, I want you to see why it lasts. Where joy begins, how it grows, and then why it lasts. First, where it begins. Look at me again at verses one through three. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus begins this message on this occasion by invoking this ancient image of a vineyard. And it's important that you know this. This is not an image that Jesus is sort of conjuring on the spot in order to make his point. This is an image that had real mental and emotional currency with Israel. It's an image that has a past. In fact, the image of a vineyard is the most frequently used image in the Old Testament for the people of God, for Israel. And remember, the people that Jesus is speaking to are Israelites. They would have heard the image of a vineyard read and taught and rehearsed since they were kids. And for Israel, the most uh, uh, powerful image where that would have happened in the Old Testament, the, the place where that image sort of came alive was in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before this. Here's what God says to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it this morning. It's kind of long, but I want you to listen for the tone. It's important. This is God speaking through his servant Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he went and he looked for that vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. 
And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, he found only an outcry. It's a long passage, but I wanted you to hear the tone to put you in the seat of the disciples. What is God saying in the Isaiah passage? God is saying to Israel, look, I have loved you as a people. I have loved you so much that I have composed love songs for you. I sought the best place for you to flourish. I sought the the best conditions for you to flourish. And while you were there, I worked tirelessly for your beauty and your glory and your joy. And yet you did not love me back. I took joy in you, but you took no joy in me. You refused my song. And so I'm gonna hand you over to your rejection. You can be what you've wanted to be. You can finally be a vineyard with no caretaker, a vineyard with no owner, a vineyard with no vine dresser. Look, I want you to see this. When the disciples heard the language of a vineyard, they were prepared for a story of judgment. It was a story in their own imagination that began with joy, but ended with condemnation. In their imagination, the story of the vineyard was a story of failure and shame and rejection until this moment. Because at this moment, the vineyard is alive again. In this moment, the vineyard is cherished again. Don't you see, all of a sudden, the joy of the vine dresser has returned, all because a true vine finally brought life back into the deadness. So that when Jesus says, I am the vine, he is saying, I am the one who has lived up in every way to the love song of the vine dresser. He is saying, look, I am the one who has brought life back into the deadness of this story. And when he says to you this morning, you are the branches, so abide in me, he is saying that through him, all of those things can be true of you as well. Through Jesus Christ, God looks at you where you sit this morning. And he is completely satisfied with your life. Through Jesus Christ, you have in every way lived up to the love song of your creator. I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. It's really important. And it's important because we often dismiss the past, our own pasts, as something that we sort of just need to get over in order to move forward in life. And we manage to do that usually until something happens, some tragedy strikes or some old wound is reopened in us. We find ourselves in counseling and then we realize all of a sudden that the past is still very much with us, bearing down even now upon our present. We cannot just snap our fingers and vaporize the past. And Jesus proves it. To his disciples, he says, hey, look, I know you have a past. It is a past that is filled with shame and brokenness and your joy will never consist in you just getting over it. It will never consist in pretending that your past has no power in your life. Joy consists in me bringing your past to a different conclusion than if it were left to itself. Don't you see Jesus is saying to Israel, he is saying to broken people everywhere, I have the power to rewrite your story. I have the power to rewrite your past. I have the power actually to bring life back into your deadness. 
I watched a documentary recently on Henry Ford. It's pretty good. One of the sad parts, though, was um, the relationship that Henry had with his only child, his only son, Edsel. Um, Edsel grew up in a very different reality than Henry did. Henry was grew up poor, and Edsel didn't grow up that way. And um, Henry always resented Edsel because of that. To him, Edsel was spoiled. He was a disappointment. But still, Henry groomed Edsel to take over the Ford Motor Company, which Edsel did in 1919, but never really on his own terms. See, early on in the interview, they were talking to Edsel from years past, and he, he uh, talked about in his decision-making how he started construction as soon as he had power on a new administrative wing that he thought would be really important. And he was starting construction at the site of company headquarters, very excited about the new addition, one of his first marks on the company. And so Edsel commissioned the construction to begin, and a large uh, hole was dug for the footprint of the building. And finally, Henry came back into town and saw the hole that was dug, and he decided that it was terrible. (laughs) He thought the construction was a waste. And so he nixed the idea completely. And Edsel started to fill back in the hole as anyone normal would do, and Henry said, no, leave it there. Don't fill it back in. I want you to leave it there for everyone to see. And so the hole just remained there in the sight of everyone. Because every day, Henry wanted, to, wanted Edsel to drive past that hole as a visible reminder of his failure. When Edsel recounted the story, he said it was a shameful reminder of a past that I could never escape. The past is incredibly powerful, especially when a father does that to a son. But here Jesus says to his disciples, you have a powerful past. My power is greater still. And he tells a story to show them that in their past, all of their holes have been covered. That their past no longer defines them. He has rewritten their story. He has returned joy to the vineyard. Where is it that joy begins? Joy begins with the good news that your story, where you sit right now, if you are in Christ, is being rewritten. Your story is being brought to a different conclusion than if you were left to yourself. What does that mean? It means that you are free from sin and shame. You're free from it. But it also means that you are free from faking your way through life, pretending that you are a fountain of righteousness. You are free from the burden of failure. And you are free also from the burden of phoniness. You are free instead to be the beloved of God, over whom he sings and for whom he works and in whom he cherishes. That's where joy begins. I want you to see next how it grows. Let's look next at how it grows, specifically at verses four through five. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I said it earlier, we don't use the word abide very much, so I feel like it needs a little bit of explaining. Abide, when John says it, basically means um, make your home here. It's homemaking language. Make your home in me, he's saying, or I'll make my home in you. Don't go anywhere else. You'll be tempted to, but this is the place where you belong. Stay put. 
And whenever you see the word here, abide, as an imperative, that is, whenever you encounter it in the passage as a command, it is in a verb tense that suggests a continual act of the will. Now, you don't want to think about verb tenses this morning, so let me just tell you what that means, okay? It just means, it implies ongoing, intentional effort in your life. What it implies is that you will have to fight for joy. You will not drift into joy. Abide in me, he says. Uh, Stay put in me. Make your home in me. Two things I want you to notice here about how this happens in practice. First, I want you to notice that Jesus does not say abide with me. seems like a small thing. But he says instead abide in me. Different prepositions. It may seem like a small thing, but with is not quite as intense as in. The word in is much more intimate, much more intense than simply being with. And when Jesus says, abide in me and I will abide in you, he is saying that our togetherness in him, that your relationship in him, that your communion in him is absolutely comprehensive. It is absolutely comprehensive. That means that you will grow in joy as you come to see that your whole life, the entirety of your comings and goings and thinkings and feelings, your whole life, is connected to him. You are in every way an extension of him. In your work, in your relationships, in your imagination, in the way that you handle your money. There is no part of you that he is indifferent about. But it also works vice versa. There should be no part of him that you are indifferent about. That is to say, if Jesus is interested in the poor, in the marginalized, then so are we. If Jesus has something to say about sexuality and romance, about generosity and the way that we handle our money, then we listen to it and apply it. If Jesus was committed to institutional religion, and he loved the church and went to the church as backwards as the church was, though they tried to kick him out, It means that we are committed to it as well. Abide in me and I in you means that your relationship with Jesus is absolutely comprehensive. Nothing in you is off limits to him. And nothing in him is off limits to you. There will be a growing recognition of his all-inclusive presence in your life. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want you to see about abiding in him. Not only is your communion, your togetherness with Jesus comprehensive, but your dependence on Jesus is absolute. Your dependence on Jesus is absolute. You probably heard me read it. Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no trick there. (laughs) When Jesus says nothing, it, it means nothing. It's not an overstatement on the part of Jesus. What Jesus is telling you this morning basically is this. You need him more than you think you do. You need him more than you think you do. And it's not like a child who sort of comes to maturity and all of a sudden maturity equals independence. You leave the home and you no longer need your parents. This is the exact opposite. You don't grow out of this. You actually grow into it. More and more you will recognize in your life that you cannot please God. 
apart from the ministry of Jesus in your heart. You cannot kill a pattern of sin. You cannot expect virtue to grow in you. You cannot expect your bitterness to be replaced by joy unless he is in it. And if God needs even to prune me, you see it in the passage, if God needs even to prune me in order to grow me, then so be it. See, that's where absolute dependence eventually lands. If God needs to bring pain into my life, if he needs to take away something precious to me in order to make me flourish, in order to bear fruit in me, then so be it. I could depend on him even in the pain. The bottom line in the middle of this passage is this. You will grow in joy to the degree that Jesus becomes bigger and more beautiful to you. To the degree that you can trust him in all things. That all of life is in him and with him and through him. Joy begins with your past, your story being rewritten. But it grows with your life being reoriented. So that it's not about you. (laughs) He lives now at the very center of it. In all things. Finally this morning I want you to see. I think probably the most important thing in the passage. And that is why the joy that Jesus gives us lasts. Why it lasts. Let's look once again at verse 11. That sums up the whole of the passage. Jesus says there in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Now, full means here lasting fullness. It means full forever. So what is it that makes that joy last? Well, first I want you to notice it's the words of Jesus themselves. Notice that Jesus places great emphasis on the power of his words. He says, these things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full forever. If you want joy that lasts, says Jesus, you have to lean into my word. You have to remember and you have to cherish the things that I have spoken to you. Lasting joy will come from the lasting words of Jesus taking root in our imaginations, in our hearts. But that's not all. It's really what the words of Jesus are about that makes our joy last. I want you to look closely once again at the last verse. I'm going to, we're going to stick our nose in this. We can't get anything else out. These things I have spoken to you, what does he say next? that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I want you to see that. It is the joy of Jesus in you that fuels lasting joy for you. In fact, we could go further this morning. We could say it like this. It is the joy of Jesus in us, the joy that Jesus takes in us, that is principally what the whole of the scriptures are about. Christianity is the story of the joy that Jesus takes in us. I don't know how much you thought about this, but I want you to think about a recent memory of joy in your life. Think about a recent picture, a memory of joy that you have in your life. Maybe it was a vacation that you just came back from. Maybe you had an encouraging conversation with a friend. Uh, maybe a sense of gratitude for life just hit you all of a sudden. You're going to work and it just hits you and it overwhelms you. You had a sense of joy. In all of those cases, and in all the other cases that I can think of, joy always comes from the outside in. Listen, joy happened to you because of the vacation. It happened to you because of the friend. It happened to you because your your team won. 
It happened to you because you'd been given life. Joy is not something that we manufacture very well at all. It is given to us. It comes to us from the outside in. And then what do you notice? It wanes, doesn't it? The vacation ends. That new job gets stale. The conversation you had is lost to the past with a million other conversations. The gratitude you felt for your life yields itself to your own mortality. We don't manufacture joy. And we can't keep joy going. And so ultimately, we need joy from a source that can. When Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, he is saying the only joy that can animate your life forever is the joy that I get from loving you forever. That is the, that is the strange logic of the cross. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. What was the joy set before him? It wasn't the pleasure of the Father. He already had that from all eternity. What did Jesus gain from the cross? He got you. You were the joy set before him. Friends, where you sit right now, you may not feel the weight of it, but right now where you sit, Jesus is rejoicing in you And the joy that Jesus takes in you is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it never, ever, ever diminishes. Even when your joy in him does diminish. I want to end with a story that I think illustrates it pretty well. Small movie that came out a few years ago. Um, The main character in the movie was a man named Bernie. And in the movie, Bernie is an extremely lonely man. Bernie has endured this life of hard luck. In fact, his bad luck has been so bad that it got him a job working for a casino. So at the casino, whenever the table gets hot, blackjack table gets hot, poker table gets hot, they send Bernie over, and Bernie's presence cools everything off. The table goes cold. Bernie hangs around, and Bernie's bad luck rubs off on everyone else. Then Bernie meets, and he falls in love with a woman named Natalie, and all of a sudden, his luck and his life start to change. They're relationship goes smoothly until Natalie's past finally catches up with her. Bernie comes home one night to find that Natalie has been attacked. She's been assaulted by some thugs from her past. And she has suffered some severe cuts and bruising to her face. And so without hesitation, Bernie helps Natalie in the car and they, they go off to the hospital. And the next scene in the movie shows Bernie and Natalie in the car. And Natalie is obviously very distraught. To get a glimpse of herself, she hasn't seen herself yet. She pulls down the visor with the mirror on it, and she absolutely cringes when she sees how ugly she has become in the mirror. The distorted features, the scarring. Bernie notices her reaction out of the corner of his eye, and immediately he slows down the car, and he grabs her arm, and he makes her look at him. And the whole time she's fighting him, and she's saying, look, I'm too embarrassed, I'm too embarrassed, don't look at me. But Bernie is vigilant, and finally he quiets her down enough to say this. Look at me. Look into my eyes. I want you to know something. My eyes are the only mirror you'll ever need. What is Bernie telling Natalie in that moment? He's saying this. Don't draw your confidence. Don't try to draw your joy from what you see when you look in the mirror. 
Draw your joy instead from the pleasure you see in me as I look at you. Draw your joy from me. Friends, that's what Jesus is saying to these early followers. On the other side of that door, um, life is about to get messy. It's about to get scary. It's about to get very sad. On the other side of that door, they're not going to find much joy, certainly not joy that will endure. They will find it instead in the measure of joy that Jesus takes in them. Look at me. My eyes will be the only mirror you'll ever need. The disciples will find joy in the vine who has finally returned life to the vineyard. And so will we. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word to us this morning. We pray, Father, that it wouldn't be something we just speak about, talk about. We pray that we would find it. Lord, if it takes pruning, would we be so courageous to ask that you would prune us to make us bear fruit, to live in the joy that you have called us to and the love that your son takes in us. We pray this in his name.